0: Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Alex Kuro. And Alex, today we are talking about the rural foster care system in Nevada and kind of some things that are going on there with former Indy reporter Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez. And then after that, Sean Glonka comes on the show to talk about data from uh, how different politicians voted during the legislative session. And at the end of the show, we're talking with reporter Janelle Calderon about street vendors in Nevada.
1: That's right, Joey. Let's dive in.
0: The foster care system in rural northeastern Nevada earlier this year saw such a large influx of children needing a place to stay to be cared for that social workers were having to watch over children staying in casino hotel rooms because there were nowhere else for those kids to stay. Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez is a reporter for KFF Health News and is here to talk with me today. She also used to be a reporter here at the Nevada Independent. So you've been on the podcast before. You've heard, Jasmine. And it's great to have you back.
2: Thanks, Joey. It's great to be back on the Indie Podcast.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so to start off, this is a pretty crazy story, having to take kids and, and place them in hotel rooms. How did we get to this point in the foster system?
2: Yeah, so it's normal to see fluctuations in need. But a report by The Imprint, which is a nonprofit publication that reports on child welfare and family issues, did find that there has been declines in how many foster homes are available to foster care kids. They did find a decline in Nevada from 2021 to 2022. It's bad across the state. If you spoke to people in Vegas and Reno, they would tell you that they're struggling. And then it even just gets more acute in rural areas where there's even less resources and even less homes to put these children in. Placing children in a casino hotel room temporarily while looking for a more stable home for them is definitely a sign of like a dire situation and something that State social workers would only do in a situation where it truly is an emergency
0: yeah and why has there been this decline? do you know has there been any research into like why there's declining foster availability?
2: That's harder to pinpoint, but the social worker that I spoke with who's based in Elko county, she thinks that there's a variety of factors for this, and some of the things that she mentioned include the economic hardships and we've been hearing about inflation for a long time now. And that's hitting families hard. And foster parents do get extra funding help to help take care of any foster kids that they have in their home. But sometimes it might just not be enough, especially with inflation. I've also heard that the process is very burdensome and onerous. It's a long process. And there's a lot of paperwork involved. There's you do background checks, which is all for the safety of the children. But I've heard from experts and social workers and people who've been through the foster care process that it definitely could be streamlined a little bit.
0: So what's the solutions that are being proposed to help? Is it is it just pump more funding into the system? Is it to reduce that onerous kind of application process? Is it a combination of things?
2: Really, the, the thing that social worker I spoke with for the story is focusing on, at least in Elko County, she is really working hard to just make sure that she's speaking to each community. Elko County is large. It's like more than 17,000 square miles. It's one of the largest counties in the country, just by, you know, landmass. So she's just making sure she hits all those farther flung communities in the county to make sure that community leaders and city councils know what is going on and so that they can regroup within their community and try to find solutions. And just encouraging more people to become foster parents. Like, that is something that they're really, really focused on is just making sure that if you're driving on I 80 going east in Nevada, you will probably see a billboard at some point that is advertising becoming a foster parent in rural areas in order to keep the foster kids who need parents in this area, who need homes, to keep them in their rural communities. Because if there's no foster parents in these areas, They get sent hundreds of miles away to Reno or Vegas, and that's just further adds to the destabilization of what they're experiencing.
0: Is this a unique situation right now where it's just like too many kids or is this kind of an ongoing problem, a systemic problem?
2: The social workers in rural areas have been really promoting and trying to encourage people to become licensed foster parents for years going back before the pandemic. But the social worker that I spoke with did mention that this is the worst. Early 2023 was the worst that she'd seen the situation in her 20 years as a social worker here. I think the situation just hit a critical point earlier this year. As far as we know, their children are not being housed in casino hotel rooms anymore, but they're hoping obviously that they don't need to go back to relying to that again.
0: Yeah, well, and... In your story, you talked about other places around the United States that are also dealing with a a similar situation And, and they're housing children in places that are even more kind of extreme than hotel rooms, right?
2: Right. Yeah. So one of the examples is North Carolina. Children there were being placed in jails and emergency rooms and state lawmakers there were working to give more funding to the child welfare system. And in Sacramento County, California, that was another big story that children were being placed in a former juvenile detention center that was being used as a temporary shelter. When these organizations don't have homes available, they resort to using these temporary shelters that are not suitable for children.
0: And what is the impact that this has on children when they end up in a casino hotel room instead of in a foster home?
2: I would imagine it would be so confusing for a child. To be taken out of your home is a, it can, that can be in and of itself a very traumatic experience. And I'm sure there's mental and emotional distress that goes along with that. And then to be placed in somewhere like a casino hotel room, casinos in general are not kid friendly. It's a very like adult centric place. Kids are already very limited to what they can do in these casinos and are very, isolated to their hotel rooms and they're staying with a social worker who's looking after them. But then again, the social worker might not be someone that they're very familiar with. And so I think it would just be so confusing and distressing to a child who's already going through a distressing
0: experience. Well, let's talk about the rest of the state too, right? So this isn't just a problem that's happening in rural Nevada, right? The foster care system is strained throughout Nevada,
2: Yeah, definitely. The social worker I spoke with, she is focused on managing Elko County, but she does work for the state. So she knows that the state as a whole is struggling with this on some level. So it's, I I think it just goes that if if you know that Vegas and Reno are struggling and those are the areas with more resources available, then you know that squeeze is going to be tighter when you're in a more remote and rural area.
0: So I know that the governor is also looking to cut some of the red tape to becoming a foster parent here in Nevada, right?
2: So at the beginning of the year, Governor Joe Lombardo, one of his first actions as governor of the state of Nevada was to require all state agencies to suggest regulation cuts. He was on this mission to cut red tape across all state agencies. And so as a result of that, the Division of Child and Family Services, which is the child welfare system in Nevada, held a public hearing in late April where state officials with the agency suggested changing licensing and regulatory rules in response to this executive order from Lombardo, lowering some of those minimum requirements for initial licensing, which can be barriers to providing placements for children and having more homes.
0: Well, Jasmine, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I'm sure there'll be more reporting on this in the future. Hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast to talk more about all of your amazing reporting over at KFF Health News. Jasmine, thank you so much.
2: Thanks, Joey. It was so great to be back on India Matters.
3: I am
0: here with Sean Golonka, and we're talking about, Sean, some of your favorites of the data. You're one of our data reporters, and we're going to get into that today. And I actually also love talking about this kind of stuff. Sean, you worked on some stories along with our intern, Eric Nugeborn, about the analysis and success rate of different politicians in the state. So to start off, what do you think about that? What do you think about the success rate of a politician? Is it how many bills they got passed or how many bills that they had vetoed or did they when they crossed the aisle?
3: Yeah, Joey, I'll say, I'll preface this with me saying that I'm a huge sports analytics nerd. Like, I love looking at basketball statistics, really nerdy, wonky things like VORP value over replacement player, like things like that, right? (laughs) And I preface with that because I'll say these things that we looked at, me and Eric, in our stories are just one or a couple ways of measuring a lawmaker's effectiveness. Like we say in sports, there's the eye test too. Like you have to look at the actual context and the actual specifics of a bill, right? Like it doesn't all just come down to X number of bills passed out of Y number of bills proposed. That's not just, you can't dumb it down like that. But I think what we wanted to do with these couple stories was to strip back all of that context and just let's just put this type of metric out there so people have that information. It is a really interesting look, peek into maybe behind
0: the curtain of what's going on in Nevada politics. And so to start, let's talk about who were some of the people that had like the most bills passed by the legislature.
3: Right, Joey. So, you know, unsurprisingly, it was the party leaders, assembly speaker, Steve Yeager, led in the assembly in terms of the raw numbers, the most bills passed. And in the Senate, it was Senate Majority Leader Nicole Cannizzaro. Let's just lay out right now what the dynamics of the legislature were a Democratic supermajority in the assembly, a near supermajority, Democratic supermajority in the Senate with Democratic control of these chambers. You're going to see a lot more Democrat-backed bills being passed than Republican ones, even with a Republican governor who vetoed certainly a hefty number of Democratic bills. But having that control in the legislature is going to give them a huge advantage in terms of the numbers passed. Rather than focusing on the raw numbers, I frame the story a little bit more around success rate because the raw numbers really can vary depending on what kind of a lawmaker you're looking at. For example incumbent returning lawmakers have more bills than freshman lawmakers and lawmakers in the senate have more than their counterparts in the assembly there are 21 senators and 42 assembly members so just makes sense that the senators would have more bills basically to propose i want to talk about that for Um, just a second
0: like they're actually i think people don't understand this that they're actually allotted an x amount of bills that they're allowed to bring forward they can't like exceed that number right
3: Right. And so, yeah, there is outlined in state law, each type of lawmaker, freshman or incumbent, assembly member or senator, basically that's like four different kinds of lawmaker, have a certain number of BDRs, bill draft requests that they get for each legislative session. Certainly there are some ways to surpass that. For example, with the party leaders, they get emergency requests where you know, late in session, things like Assembly Speaker Steve Yeager's big homelessness bill, AB 528. That was an emergency request. The way that we graded this analysis was by looking strictly at who introduced the measure, who was the first primary sponsor listed on the bill. Got it.
0: Like you said, obviously, Democrats are going to like, if you're just looking at it without having any context, they're going to have a lot more success because they have the dominant numbers in both the Assembly and the Senate. But let's talk about those Republicans and who was the most successful Republican, obviously having to struggle through getting past the Democratic machine in Nevada that's
3: here right now. Who were the successful Republicans to get through that? On the Republican side, we similarly saw in terms of just raw numbers, it was the party leaders Senate Minority Leader Heidi Severs Gansert, Assembly Minority Leader P.K. O'Neill. And again, that was just because they had emergency requests and that sort of thing. They introduced more bills in terms of success rates. The top Republicans we saw Were a pair of freshmen in the assembly, Gregory Koenig and Rich DeLong, who both went two for three on their bills, which was pretty high ranking in terms of success rate. I think the next closest in the assembly was assemblywoman Melissa Hardy at 349. So they they were really a step above their caucus colleagues. On the Senate side, in his final term, Senator Pete Gokichia led the way in his caucus, going five for 14. I'm also curious who struggled the most, who had the worst success rate. So I'll start with the Democratic side, because in a Democrat-controlled legislature, it's perhaps somewhat odd that a Democratic member would have no bills passed. But on that side, Assemblyman David Orentlicker, a Democrat, he went 0 for 10. Not a single one of his 10 bills passed out of the legislature. Freshman Assemblywoman Selena Luru-Hatch, she went 0 for 6. She did have one bill that reached the governor's desk, but... Uh, the governor vetoed that bill. So she basically ended up 0 for six. There were another four assembly Republicans who didn't have any bills passed. And then on the Senate side, the only person without a bill passed was Senator Kerry Buck. And I think she really stood above the pack because as a returning senator, she had 19 bills that she introduced and not a single one of those made it out of the legislature. In fact, only one of those 19 bills even received a hearing, and then it did not advance past that point. Democrats in the Senate really shut down Carrie Buck. Yeah, so she definitely had a rough session. When you Have you talked to the legislators all about this? I didn't get a chance to talk to her about it, but just looking at the political dynamics here is it can be pretty clear why this happened. Carrie Buck, she's in a swing district. I think she only won by a few hundred votes in 2020 after In the same Senate district, she lost by a few hundred votes in 2016. So this is a swingy, tight district. And like I said before, Democrats in the Senate are on the verge of a supermajority. If they take one more seat in the Senate, they'll have a supermajority, 14 seats. And so Carrie Buck, she's up for reelection in 2024. If Democrats are able to unseat her and hold on to the rest of their seats in the Senate, they would have a supermajority, not giving her any sort of policy or political wins is advantageous for Democrats who are looking to remove her from power. It really shows you the political dynamics happening behind the scenes, right? Maybe they're not
0: even considering these bills, not necessarily because they're good or bad bills, but because they just want her to look bad so that she doesn't do well in re-election. But I also wanted to talk about vetoes, something
3: you brought up briefly. What are the vetoes looking like? This is the most vetoes a governor has ever issued, right? Now, in a single session, Lombardo 75 vetoes set the record this year, and- Unsurprisingly, these were nearly all Democratic bills that he vetoed. And then Sean, the other thing that we were looking into was crossing the aisle. What lawmakers voted for bills that were not with their party? And what did we see when we looked into that? Yeah, so this was actually in turn Eric who was he was leading the way on this. I'm actually I'm very grateful to have him on the team. I think perhaps somewhat unsurprisingly, maybe surprisingly, depending on, on your perspective on this, but Senate Minority Leader Heidi Sievers Ganser led the way in terms of voting against the majority of her party on a bill and with 47 times. And so what Eric measured was looking at votes and how many times did a majority of party members, whether that be Democrats or Republicans, but across both houses, let's say out of 22 Republicans across the Senate and the Assembly, 15 of them voted against a bill, then the seven of them who supported it are considered bucking their party, basically. Senator Severs-Ganser and Senator Kerry Buck, notably as a part of that, they they are both in swing districts. So they're in districts where a far right Republican might be less likely to get elected versus somebody who's a little bit more moderate and can appeal to that broader audience who's represented by that district. And what about Democrats, Sean? How many Democrats are voting for Republican-backed measures? I would say, Joey, that a lot of the folks that we saw at the top of the Democrat list in terms of bucking their party were Democratic lawmakers who were voting against Democrat-backed bills. So you saw a wide majority of Democrats voting for a bill, but then maybe a select few Democratic lawmakers who were basically, they said they they couldn't support whatever measure it was. And Assemblywoman Chandra Summers-Armstrong led the way there. Right behind her was Assemblywoman Clara Thomas. I think Notably, they voted against some school discipline bills, disagreeing with the foundation of repealing restorative justice laws. I know that was a big fight that we saw during the legislative session.
0: Well, thank you so much. We got really nerdy. It was fun. Hopefully, we'll do a panel one day, Sean, where we can just talk to the biggest nerds in Nevada about all of these numbers. I think it's super
3: fun to talk about this kind of stuff, actually. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and for doing this analysis. Thanks, Joey. And if anyone has ideas for more metrics, just hit my inbox. I'm always interested. Sean at com. Email Sean. He loves
0: numbers. <laughs> I am now joined by reporter Janelle Calderon. Janelle, how's it going?
1: Hi, Joey. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, good to have you on the podcast. And today you're talking about SB 92, which was passed by Senator Fabian Donate, and it's helping with street vendors.
1: Yeah, so it's essentially adding regulations and a license for them. So now this is legitimizing them as small business owners. And with that, there's health regulations that they got to come up with. And they're going to come up also with maps of where the vendors can operate. And this is mainly in Washoe and Clark counties because of the population limitations. So the Strip is off limits and there's going to be a task force enforcing these rules as well. It was signed in June, June 15th, the last day that governor was able to sign bills. But last week we had the ceremonial signing and there were A lot of people from Make the Run, Nevada, which has advocated for this bill. And they also do other work with advocating for the quality of work for these vendors that are outside. And there's extreme heat, as we know. So they're doing also work with environmental justice and involving the workers, outdoor workers as well.
0: So what is this bill going to mean for vendors in the future? And am I going to start seeing, you know, a hot dog vendor like we see in New York on my block or something here in, in Midtown Reno?
1: You might. You might. But this is going to be a long process. Like we don't have the regulations yet. Even Secretary of State Cisco Aguilar was like, this is going to take a few months. They're hoping that by August, we have some idea of the regulations by the counties, that's, you know, affected. And then we can start building the task force. And he sent peace welcoming the vendors to be heard. But the vendors can start registering with the Secretary of State as getting a business license in the state because that's going to be a requirement to get a street vendor license. It's going to be taking a while, but at least they'll have those protections as small businesses and we will start paying taxes and having those health safety conditions and inspections as any other business would.
0: And one thing that happened during the ceremony was Governor Joe Lombardo talked about kind of the cooperation between the community and the street vendors and the police, right?
1: Yeah, that's actually something that surprised me because we knew there's going to be this task force and we knew that the health department and county officials and city officials would be part of the task force. But Governor Joe Lombardo and Secretary of State Aguilar mentioned on Tuesday that they're also including law enforcement. And they want it to be a positive experience. And when I talked to vendors on the street, they said they don't have an issue with police. Like some police officers even buy from them. I think it's just continuing on that positive or hopefully positive relationship and that they feel supported.
0: So are there any concerns that are coming from the street vending community?
1: Yeah, as we know, street vendors, especially here in Nevada with 30% of our population being Hispanic, tend to be Hispanic or Latino, immigrants in general. So even though you don't need to prove citizenship to get a business license and to get this type of license specifically, I personally fear that there might be some hesitancy or some distrust in the government. I asked the Secretary of State about building these relationships and how he's going to deal with distrust. He just mentioned opening up the conversation, being welcoming to the people. And I think it helps that he's also Latino. I guess we'll see. We'll see what type of outreach they do to educate the community and ease those worries.
0: Cool. Janelle Caleron is a reporter here at the Nevada Independent. Doing great work. As this progresses, I'm sure we'll see more of this as well as lots of other things in the Latino communities and beyond. So Janelle, thank you so much for joining me for the podcast today.
1: Yep, I'll be following up. Thank you, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We want to thank Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez, Sean Galanca, and Janelle Calderon for being on the show today.
0: The show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, and Alex Kuro, with additional help from Michelle Rendell's.
1: If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen.
0: You can also email us at podcast at
1: Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and Joey.
0: Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Alex Kuro. And we'll talk to you next week.